Hey guys, so this is going to be the first episode of the LCI Green Room audio feed, open and unscripted. So this is actually a little bit of an older conversation that I, I did last year. Uh, it's not too old. It was a, the later half of last year. Uh, I think it was November-ish. And it was a conversation I had with Matt Erickson. So Matt is the host of the Kingpilled podcast. Uh, Matt is a Christian of the Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox uh, persuasion, if you will, or tradition. He is a former libertarian, which still have a lot of positions that would fit within the umbrella of uh, or libertarianism or would be in agreement with libertarianism. Uh, but he diverged from libertarianism and has some, you know, different political views, uh, which we get into in the conversation. Uh, this will be an interesting first episode for this Green Room uh, feed. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when they hear uh, people talking that have, like, differences of opinion, right, or, like, if you hear a guest on a show and you don't have his position, you then look to the host and want him to make all the arguments that you would make or to be more combative, there's certainly, I guess, a time and place for more formalized debate over certain topics. But a lot of what I like to do, and you'll hear this come out in this conversation, is I just want to talk with people. I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear their position, hear what led them to their points of view. I want to find areas where we agree and really connect with them and kind of like, you know, build a foundation of like, hey, like, you know, on, on X, Y, and Z, man, we're in like perfect agreement. I really like your arguments along these lines and I really like your insight here. You know, I, I, I like that rule that Jordan Peterson has from his 12 rules for life that, that you should treat people like they know something that you don't. And so that's always, I think, a good way to kind of like build a you know a foundation to build a relationship with someone and then you can kind of from there from a place that's not combative but rather that's kind of like you're both trying to learn from one another right you can dive into the areas where you disagree and figure out well, how deep are those disagreements in, in this conversation I, I have a conversation the conversation starts out and we sort of go along the lines of like, you know, just Matt giving his religious and political journey. And then from there, we find just different topics of, you know, like uh, things that he was especially attracted to in Eastern Orthodoxy when he went uh, down that path. I, I, you know, comment areas where, where I really agree with that, where I find value in, in both Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, even though I'm a you know, reformed uh, Protestant, and uh, we talk about certain things within libertarianism that uh, we both find to be problematic. Even you know, I'm not, I'm not an, you know, I try not to be an ideologue. There are things within you know the tradition of libertarianism, or at least within like the meat tradition is the wrong word. There are things within the umbrella or the the sphere of libertarianism or libertarians. Uh, where, where I can find things to criticize. And so we, we, we find things to agree with there. And then I, you know, I, I hear his journey out of 
libertarianism and where he thought it fell short. And again, found areas where we agreed on like, okay, I can see why you believe this. I agree with you on this point. And then explained to him, well, you know, this is why I call myself a libertarian anarchist. This is how I think this connects to the gospel, how I think it connects to the Bible, even church tradition, things that even though we come from different camps of Christianity that we have already established, we largely agree on. Let's talk about that. Let's see. I want to see how how deep our differences are. I want to see if our differences are more semantic or if there are some fundamental disagreements we might have. And you know what? That's okay. Like we might come away disagreeing, but we can learn from one another. And hopefully when we are having a moment where our ideas are sparking or or clashing uh, with each other, that that is done in the spirit of of iron sharpening iron, um, not either side trying to you know score cheap shots or you know you know win a performative battle but but not get anything uh deeper of value for each other or for those who are listening to the conversation so you know you might hear matt say things again just unless you might hear matt say things you disagree with and you wonder well i don't think jacob agrees with that why didn't you challenge it again i'm not i'm not we're it's not helpful to approach conversations like that, where where you nitpick everything, everyone, something someone says that you might disagree with or you might put a different way. Um, and it's also kind of like pick your battles. But I, I really like Matt. I listen to his show. He talks about a lot of things that, that again, I, I do find valuable. Something that he talks about a lot that, that I've talked to talked about too a little bit is like, what does it mean to live for the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be, to, to, to view Christ as our as our king and, and and Christ as our our lord and you know he shouldn't like obviously he's our lord in terms of like you know what is right and wrong and he's our he's our savior and and those are fundamental aspects of the gospel of of the bible and 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 those are true don't want to like pass over those like those aren't huge things in and of themselves but there's there's other like i think what we talk about a lot that that is really important is that Jesus wants to be Lord over all of our life, not just aspects of it. That includes things that people might not traditionally think of, like our our physical health. Matt talks a lot on his show about physical health and and making ourselves strong and healthy. Uh, as you know, if we're representatives of Christ, then you know one of the first things that people see about us is our appearance and how we take care of ourselves, how we dress, how we conduct ourselves, what kind of physical shape we're in and whatnot. And, you know, I mean, should we make an idol out of physical attraction or our bodies or things like that? No, but uh, that doesn't mean that self-care and and health and things like that are unimportant. Um, You know, same with how we conduct ourselves in the workplace, same with how we conduct ourselves in terms of you know hobbies or things we do on the side how we spend our time uh how we use our electronic devices there's so many areas in which we we don't necessarily always think about what does it mean for jesus to be lord over our life and so that's that's something that i i thought like if you don't come away with anything else that part of the conversation i found to be incredibly edifying incredibly enjoyable and again i think interplays into what he, we, we, we at LCI like to talk about, right? We, we love to talk about how, you know, Christ is Lord and, and Caesar is not. And, you know, that's, so that's an extension of that, is that uh, Jesus is Lord, and that includes in the civil sphere. And so whatever views we have about government and authority, we need to 
reconcile that with the fact that Christ is, is our Lord, Christ is our Savior, and that his kingdom is the only true and eternal and just kingdom. And, and then let our political theology, let our political philosophy flow from that and flow from an understanding of the entirety of Scripture. So... Uh, that'll be it for an introduction for this one. I'm not always going to have an introduction. I don't think we'll always have introductions for these LCI Green Room episodes. But because this one was recorded before the Green Room was even a thing, um, I thought it would be helpful to just kind of contextualize it, give you guys a little bit of a, a little brief introduction there. So, uh, again, these are unedited, uh, un unscripted even to you know a large extent. So uh, if that's what you're here for, I definitely think uh, you're going to enjoy it. All right, we are live. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast. Uh, I am here today with a live stream uh, joined by Matt Erickson, who is the host of the Kingpilled Podcast. And uh, as, as Matt put it on Twitter, this is a conversation a long time in the making, and I'm super excited to be joined by Matt today. So, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's an honor. We've uh, we've talked to each other digitally many times, but this is the first time we're talking to each other in this particular digital fashion. And yes, I'm I'm, I'm honored to be here. I'm I'm honored that you uh, we finally got it to work out. You know, we've both been busy. You know, had had kids and had other things going on in this busy life. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think we've both been on each other's radars for a while. I know I've. I've, I've talked about you and things that you've talked about on my show and you've talked about me and stuff I've talked about on your show and we've, we've wanted to do this for a while and I'm glad that we're finally able to work it out. Um, a lot of people uh, who watch my show are probably at least somewhat familiar with you, but for those who aren't, you know, let's start out here just with the basic introductions. Can you introduce yourself, your background and, you know, kind of what your podcast is about? Yeah, so... <clears throat> The podcast has kind of taken a uh, um, a wandering journey. It began in large part because uh, I was it was actually in development for quite a few years before I actually started it. Because I was uh, I would just go home and I would rant to my wife. I would like listen to podcasts all day, and then I'd have all these thoughts, and I'd go rant to my wife and and uh, and you know bless her bless her heart because um, she finally told me one day she was kind of. She goes, you know, maybe you should start a podcast. Like you, you, you listen to all these podcasts. Why don't you start a podcast? And uh, and then you could talk to people that that really care about this. And I was like, okay, I, I pick up what you're laying down. <laughs> um, so I started doing the show uh, as a basically a dyed in the wool and cap, um, red Rothbard, red Hoppe, red basically every bit of libertarian or anarchist literature I could get my hands on, and uh, I. Kind of, I guess the the podcast for the first couple of years was sort of documenting my journey away from libertarianism as a whole, and then what it became was then I, I stumbled into Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and um, I I grew up Seventh Day Adventist Christian, a uh, very uh, new, uh, relatively mm. new Protestant sect, yep. um, and uh, very devout, very, I was, I went to an evangelism school. I did door to door mission work, uh, kind of like a Mormon or like a, like a Jehovah's witness. Yep. Um, these are all traditions that all came up at the same time. Yeah. Restorationist um, movement. Yeah. Yep. So I, uh, I was, I was kind of just distant from the church for most of my twenties. Um, though I never, I always would have considered myself a Christian. I would have been able, I would have 
readily argued for any Christian position, but I was, I don't know. I just kind of detached. I I felt like I knew inevitably I was going to come back around to the church, but I just didn't know when and how. Hmm. And that's kind of the direction the podcast wound up going. The more that I studied political history, the more I realized I was studying religious history. And uh, so the podcast has always been kind of a, a sort of loosely just me trying to work out ideas in real time, I think by talking. So it's great to just have a place where I can just sit here and talk for as long as I want. And I'm not just talking into the into a void. There's actually people yeah. who will talk back at me and reflect back what I'm saying, which helps me kind of refine and optimize the ideas. So yeah, uh, kind of rebooted the podcast here recently. And we've been, um, uh, it's got a bit of a different flavor than it used to, but it's kind of cultural commentary, politics, religion, philosophy, um, all packaged into one. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I listen to your show probably, you know, semi-regular whenever, whenever it's live, when I'm driving, I, I tune in and yeah, really, if you guys talk about a lot of different things, I know I, I was recently commenting probably like a month ago on one of your episodes where you guys were talking about like health and different things you were doing, uh, on that front. And you guys will talk about religion and, and other things as well. Um, and so, yeah, I highly, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, it's funny you're talking about that, the, uh, having the ability to bounce ideas off and work things out in real time. You know, I, I had a similar experience when I, with my original podcast, the, the Daniel three podcast, kind of what that was. It was like, I have things that I want to talk about and work out. And um, although I, I you know, I, I don't know, I've become a little bit less of a Jordan Peterson fanatic as I've aged, but there's still things about him that I appreciate. And one of the things he always talked about, which I, I still think is completely true is that, um, you know, free speech isn't just like this right to criticize government. It's also, you know, the, the act of conversation is actually like the act of thinking and that like, you know, we can't just work things out in our heads. We have to actually, you know, put ideas out into the, you know, public square or discourse or whatnot, because, um, most new ideas are stupid, <laughs> it turns out, um, but but some of them can be vital or sometimes it's just like we need, you know, a little bit of that to help us understand, you know, ancient wisdom and things like that. And we and how, you know, really it's about, I think, applying ancient wisdom to modern circumstances. And so um, understanding where we fit into all that. And sometimes the only way to do that is to to go on a journey and talk with people. And uh, so I can definitely appreciate that's a similar experience that you've gone through um you were talking about there uh how you kind of started out as a ancap and then sort of you know had a political journey that sort of took you out of libertarianism you know obviously you know this show with the name is, is pretty on the nose uh you know that I, <laughs> I i would still identify as a, a libertarian or an ancap but you know more in a i don't know i i actually had an episode about this recently where i said i'm not really an anarchist because it's like my my identity is really just as a christian I just happen to think that libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism are political theories that line up best with Christian principles. But it's like I don't like using those as labels because it's like, why, why would I go around calling myself an ANCAP when that's not really what I am? Like my loyalty, allegiance, my beliefs aren't really informed as much as I, I can appreciate reading out Rothbard and 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 Hoppe and, and all them. But, you know, they aren't ultimately, you know gospel to me so it doesn't make sense to identify that way but i i still believe in a lot of those principles um i think to some extent um you know just based on listening to you watching things you talk about um both on your podcast and social media i feel like you would probably still agree with a lot of different you know principles or conclusions or stances you know within sort of the messian rothbardian 
tradition, but you, you don't identify with that anymore. And you've kind of moved away from, from that. So, uh, you know, maybe explain to, to us a little bit about that journey more specifically, you know, what were the ideas, concepts, uh, experiences you had that, that made you think that, you know, libertarianism, you know, maybe while there's some value there, doesn't, you know, give us all the answers or, or make some fundamental assumptions that you think are wrong? That's a good question. Um, so this really came out of uh, the, the the 2020 experience, everything that happened in 2020, because there's a lot that happened in 2020. Um, and I began, I began confronting the very real reality that it felt like things were beginning to escalate, things were beginning to accelerate, and um, there was a there was there's kind of a cultural uh, evolution or revolution that's happening, and the existing governance structures weren't aren't equipped to adapt that quickly. That eventually we're going to see this kind of slow motion collapse happening. It's going to be slow motion at first, and then it's going to happen suddenly um, because we're we're in a transition stage in world history in governance models and libertarianism is one attempt at coming up with what this new governance model will be so i was very dedicated to figuring out okay how do we make this happen how do we make this transition to a libertarian government not just in the um you know how do we convince everyone to be libertarians but how, like, 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 what are the what are the actual tangible steps for us to do this? I don't. I'm not as interested in just kind of sitting around, um, waxing poetic about um, libertarian theory. I want to see, okay, what what do we do to, to to put this into practice? How do we begin actually making this happen? And the events of 2020 revealed something that I was already starting to grapple with, which was that libertarianism is very unpopular. People just don't, it, it, there's, there's a fundamental kind of pragmatic issue here where if you're trying to spread libertarianism via democratic means, you're never going to succeed because you're, you're, you're essentially fighting a war that you can't win. You're trying to out, you're trying to end run forces that are by definition better at end running society than you are. So how do you begin engineering this? How do we, how do we understand what this force is, how this force is moving and the way that we can navigate around it? so that we can engineer the sort of society that we want. We don't need to, I was coming from this kind of fundamental premise that we don't necessarily need to convince everybody to accept libertarianism. We just need to offer it to them in a way that they will accept it. Hmm. So we need to put it together in some sort of format that's accessible, that they, that will, when they're, when they're looking at this option versus this option, they'll cho choose this option. Well, it's very plain that the political process is not going to be an effective vehicle to make that happen. It moves far too slowly. It's far too entrenched. There's And at the end of the day, libertarianism is not a big moneyed interest. And that's what makes you move in politics. So if politics isn't going to get it done, how do we get this done on the cultural level? But how do we get it done on the cultural level in a way that doesn't, doesn't fall short of the goal before everything completely falls apart and we wind up in Mad Max? So I was... I, I began this search in a very kind of a pragmatic mindset, looking toward trying to bring about libertarianism, so to speak. So I, I saw myself as not just an ANCAP, but as like one of the most dedicated dyed-in-the-wool ANCAPs who really wanted to make this happen. 
so I, I began trying to study this this uh, this force that's kind of moving, seems to be moving under the surface in society that is um, that's moving us in this direction of greater and greater global control, technocracy, this sort of thing. So I began trying to study and understand the philosophy of the government, the way the government's like what what is the what's the code, what's the operating code for these social structures, the way that they're navigating and growing. And I wanted to learn libertarian theory better. So I was like, well, let me go look at the look at the people who are writing before the libertarians, the ones the libertarians inherited from. This led me down a um, a, 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 tr- a train of, of research, I suppose, into a school of thought called uh, neo-reactionary, NRX. And these were guys who were very much like me. They started out as Hoppians um, or Hoppian adjacent but wanted to really seriously grapple with with this idea of how do we actually engineer these type of covenant communities? How do we solve the problem of government? And um, I kind of, I'll have to kind of abbreviate some of this because I mean, you can ask me more questions to parse some of it if you you want, but I'm going to try to keep this from being a 45 minute answer. (laughs) Um, So uh, needless to say, what I discovered through, um, studying the NRX writers, which goes, which I started with a guy named Mitch's mold Moldbug, which was a pen name for a guy named Curtis Yarvin. Yeah. Um, a lot of you guys are probably familiar with him. Um, and then there was other writers like uh, Bertrand de Juvenal, uh, the book, The Machiavellians by um, James Burnham, The Managerial Revolution by James Burnham um, and uh, uh, Carl Schmidt. These are a bunch of these different writers that are kind of... Um, they're 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 people who are, are are starting with the fundamental libertarian principle, which is really just the fundamental liberal principle, which is the idea of the atomized individual being the fundamental unit of humanity. And they're writing on this and elaborating on how this this perception of humanity is fundamentally flawed in such a way that by building structures around this idea, you're creating the pretext for social collapse. You're basically baking in social degeneration into the systems themselves. The, the liberal principles of uh, government that, that libertarians are trying to purify, that they're trying to apply the most pure application of, they're actually the principles that are making the, the state more powerful, that are causing the state to expand and grow and exert influence over a broader and broader uh, sphere. So I'm having this, this thought going on on one hand, where I'm trying to evaluate the the, the mechanics of government to figure out how we can engineer the the ideal or clo- or just a just a more optimal libertarian form of government at the same time I also had this um, uh, sort of fascination with with like ancient history and especially like revisionist ancient history um, or even just revisionist history in general but ancient history like uh, like uh, Atlantis and ancient civilizations this whole sort of thing and that's kind of dovetailed a little bit with also uh, another train of thought that I had running um, as well. Like I, I like I think for a hobby, so I kind of have these trains of thoughts running. And what I found is that all these trains of thoughts were beginning to intersect. They were all running into a single point. Um, and I that point was that I was seeing. Um, number one, this force that moves through history that's kind of ever ever disintegrating things, disintegrating, degrading things. And um, and then the the I would say uh, 
fundamental essentiality of monarchy and not monarchy just in terms of the particular governance structure that we typically think of as, you know, like a medieval monarchy or something, but the idea of um, hierarchy being a fundamental part of nature and hierarchy descending from a monarch, from a, a source. And that this is this is a pattern that is fundamentally human. So it expresses itself in politics. It also expresses itself in religion. Because ultimately religion and politics are just two sides of one coin. Every church needs a state sure. and every state, yeah. every every state needs a church, and every church will inevitably be a state. Um so that was these were kind of the ideas that were um I was sort of trying to figure out the libertarian pragmatic thing on one end, and then I was studying liberalism and beginning to recognize liberalism as a religious technology. And so then I kept going back further and further, and then I ended up crashing into my ancient history um, study that I was doing. And that's what essentially led me to Eastern Orthodoxy, where all of these things coalesced. Right. Which was the reason why I, I, I kind of, I've heard you talk about this before, and I knew I couldn't start with Orthodoxy. I know that's part of the equation here, but I know it was kind of your political sojourn that led you into Orthodoxy. Um, so what is it about... Um, you know, Eastern, and you can continue, you know, we'll keep the first question kind of in mind, but, you know, so, so when you, what led you into Eastern Orthodoxy? You said you started out as, you know, you were raised Seventh-day Adventist, and I guess, I don't know, uh, between this and now, you would have identified as a, as a Christian, and I guess a nominal sense, um, maybe you believed in, in, you know, basic Christianity, but I guess you weren't, you know, particularly devout or committed to a particular church during this time, is that fair to say? Um, right. and then Eastern Orthodoxy changed that. So, so what, what about Eastern Orthodoxy appealed to you on like that, like a personal level? Um, how did, how, you know, what kind of religious experiences did you have in terms of, uh, you know, how did this transform your life? And then how did this kind of, uh, coalesce with the, uh, you know, political and, uh, historical, you know, uh, thought, uh, processes that you were, you know, kind of exploring there. Hmm. So the throughout that period there where I would have considered myself sort of broadly Christian, I departed from um, it's kind of part of the reason I sort of was drifting from the church in the first place, which was just really beginning to reject a lot of the the, the fundamental premises of Seventh-day Adventism, just being like, yeah, this is just this is just bizarre. Um, and at that time, actually, my family, I was homeschooled growing up. My family was very much involved in homeschooling. I've got several younger siblings that were all homeschooled. So my family got involved with the homeschool movement. From there, they began um, interacting a lot more with guys like R.C. Sproul, Vody Bauckham, uh, John MacArthur, uh, the, a lot of the people who are really in the reformed, more reformed camp. And that's where I was. So as my family was kind of doing this and I was checking in with them periodically, I was kind of off doing my own stuff. But then I talked to them and we talked about... <clears throat> about religion, Christianity, the sort of thing I was, I was like, yeah, this is, I'm, 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 I really appreciate the, the rigorous scholastic, sober, conservative nature of, of the reformed tradition. That's where I really saw they I saw them as kind of like my, um, my countrymen. This is sort of my, my people. And so then with orthodoxy, I, it really was was just kind of happenstance almost. I in in hindsight now when I look back, I can see where my mind was being prepared for it. It's like my heart was being cultivated so that the seeds when they were planted, they would actually take root and grow. The 
and there it was kind of from from some funny sources. So I was very interested. I was getting very interested in mis, like mysticism, mystical reality. I was I was following a lot of guys who were like Buddhist thinkers, talking about like Krishnamurti and a lot of this sort of monistic um, uh, view. And it wasn't that I was had a thing for the monism necessarily, as much as I just had a a fascination with 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 the mystical realities of life and wanted to study them and understand them better. I was also really interested in a lot of things with like 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 quantum mechanics and advanced math and 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 differential functions and like I don't understand them. I'm I'm not I'm not like sharp enough to be able to actually understand these things. I just I just explore them and see what sort of interesting aha moments I get out of them. And I was realizing that at the root of science, I saw myself as like a science like I'm very science scientifically minded. I wanted to study and research this stuff from a scientific perspective. And the, the deeper that I dug into quote unquote science or quote unquote history, the further I dug, the more that I encountered religion. These are, I was, I was, I was excavating religious principles out of history and out of science. Like at the root of science, if you listen to a, a like a theoretical physicist talk, they're, they're almost indistinguishable from a, uh, a religious philosopher. There's no, there's no ground there. They're not standing on anything. No, <laughs> you're right. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that. The what's that? Kind of, I don't know if it's a quote or just kind of like a, a saying where people say like a um, magic. It, science looks like magic to you know people who are like less advanced or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so you know, <laughs> I don't know. I think there's something to that where it's like because people say there's no, I don't know, like like everything can be explained naturalistically, scientifically, and and you know, you have this naturalist, materialist, atheistic, you know, sort of. Uh, meme that I think you know people in, in you know my age group, your age group, you know we kind of grew seeing, grew up kind of seeing that being popularized. But yeah, like the more you look into it, you're like, oh no, you're religious too. You just base your religion in nothing. Mm-hmm. Like your religious presuppositions are basically, you know, at you know, at, really not nothing. You're 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 tearing down the house of 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 Christendom and then trying to build your scientific worldview upon the foundation that was already there and pretending it doesn't exist but yeah like i mean when you trace scientific principles down to their bottom it's like they're just based on all sorts of assumptions and and pre uh presuppositions that um you know if you keep asking they run out of answers and yes yes and, and and actually and then the more advanced into science you go the more you're like is this science or is this just magic? Like at some point, like when you get into like, I mean, you know, whether it's quantum physics or getting down to like uh, nitty gritty, you know, in terms of like really advanced, like biochemistry and stuff, like understanding how the human body works and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. um, It's, I mean, it's too much to get into in the, you know, time we have here, but it, it, it it certainly reinforces the kind of things you're talking about that. It's not a, (laughs) um, you know, there it's not just like uh, I think some people think the Christian worldview is that like we have the physical world and then like there's the spiritual world and they're like separate. And maybe they touch once in a while, but for the most part, they're separate. Like, no, no, no. We live in a spiritual world in a sense, mm-hmm. or you could call it a mystical world yes. if you wanted. And and the physical is is, is part of that. Like, sure, we, we experience the, 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 the spiritual world through our physical bodies, but we live in a spiritual world ultimately. How mm-hmm. I would, how I would describe yeah. it. We live it. There's one reality, and we experience right. that reality both physically or materially, and spiritually or mystically. Yeah, these were 
these are the sorts of things like as I was studying memes, like the way that a meme develops and the way that the roles it plays. And then there's these concepts of like a, like an egregore and where you have like a, an entity that's formed out of like the collective decision making process of a group of people. Different groups of people function as different entities. A group of 10 people is going to function as a different body than a group of 100 people or, or a million people. They have different traits, different behavioral right. characteristics. So this was the this was the sort of thing that I was trying to study. I was like you you said this very well. We have this idea where it's kind of like if you dig down at some point you're going to hit this this uh this line where all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, okay, there's the end of material reality and here's where the beginning of 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 uh mystical reality or whatever is." But there is no line. It just right. It, it it it's not even a gradient. It's just the, these are this is one reality. We have one reality that we're experiencing and we experience it in these different ways. Um so somebody recommended to me, I'd kind of started, I'd, I'd gone deep down the Jordan Peterson rabbit hole. That led me to Jonathan Pajot. And I was very interested in his ideas of the symbolic world. And it kind of plays on a lot of these same themes. Um, I was very interested in Jungian um, uh, archetypes and Jungian uh, cognitive psychology. Um, these were all different things that I was kind of dabbling in, but they were all leading me toward this. I, I just kind of felt like I was being pulled in each one of these vectors. And one day somebody said to me, um, you should check out this podcast called Lord of Spirits. And and I was like, okay, like why? Why do you think I'd be interested? And they said, oh, it's it's like it's Christianity, but it's kind of like mystical. It's they it's two Orthodox priests who are talking about the um uh the 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 spiritual world that that we interact with. And prior to that, like if you'd have told me like a podcast with Orthodox priests, number one, I didn't know what orthodoxy was. And um, somebody kind of showed me like pictures of Orthodox monks or something. I was like, oh, these are like those weird Catholics with long beards. That's like, these are, I don't, <laughs> I don't know the difference here. And, and they said, no, just like, listen to the podcast. It's really interesting. They're talking about giants, like the, the mentions of giants in the Bible and what this meant. And I was like, oh, this gets my alternative history thing. I'm very interested in this, you know, the, this, uh, tales of lost civilizations, a la Graham Hancock and that sort of thing. So I started listening to this podcast and it was very much kind of like listening to a podcast about like Middle Earth, kind of in terms of it's like imagine you had a couple of nerds that are sitting around and they're talking about the literature of Middle Earth and like the the relationship between the different species and all this sort of thing. That's kind of how it felt. It felt sort of like a sci-fi or fantasy podcast, but these were Orthodox priests who were describing biblical history and they're describing um, the they're getting deep into philosophy much deeper than most political philosophy, vastly deeper, vastly more, more um, complex and sophisticated. And it blew my mind. I didn't know that this level of uh, philosophical uh, sophistication existed anywhere within Christianity. I'd never encountered it. And I'd done a lot of reading and um, studying, and I'd been exposed to a lot of little subcultures of Christianity. And it just broke my compass. I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to do with it. It was, it, it was presenting a completely different picture of reality than anything that I'd grown up with or encountered, but every single little piece began to fit together. So instead of having a view of reality that was propositional based on, um, like a, a kind of a list of belief sets, it was actually a, um, a, my buddy two bit podcast in the, in the, in the chat here, he, he said, I like the mystic aesthetic cause it makes my body hair less weird. Yeah. There's certainly a lot of body hair. Um, he likes to say the ritual and the reality are one. We are um, uh, the the rich. We we are defined by our rituals, by the things we participate in ritually. 
you, you can think of this on a really weird autistic level. Like you get up and you, you brush your teeth. When you brush your teeth, that's a ritual. The way you get out of bed is a ritual. The way you put on your clothes is a ritual. The way you eat is a ritual. The way you walk is a ritual. Every single one of these is ritualized. Every single practice that you have is ritualized. And the thing about that is that you're following this pattern. This pattern isn't real, but this pattern instantiates itself when you embody it. You're the one who makes it real by embodying the pattern. Um, right. Well, this is what atheists do with morality, I think. Exactly what you're describing. And they think, oh, well, no, we're just doing it with our, our logical faculties. We just, you know, like the secular humanists think that we just... It's just common sense, right? Like these things are wrong. Like, no, you're acting out these religious archetypes and they they, they, they are very embedded in us. I mean, it's even a biblical idea, right? But mm -hmm. you're acting like they're just embedded in us because of biology, not because of some deeper spiritual metaphysical truth. I remember Jordan Peterson having a debate with Matt Dillahunty about this was the entire debate. And they were like talking past each other because, you know, Peterson, although he's not you know, in, entirely in, in the Christian world, he he's like, you know, right on that edge. And he's like talking in, in that kind of language. And Dillahunty is just like, you know, completely acting out the the meme of the, you know, the, the the ignorant atheist at that point who can't see anything. But, you know, the he's 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 convinced that everything that he sees through his eyeballs is all that he can is the entirety of reality. So they're talking past each other. But, yeah, it's like, you know, we we act out the these uh these archetypes not just in that that's true for you know morality it's true for uh you know many different aspects of our lives a lot of what we do is um not consciously thought out it's you know we're, we're acting mm -hmm. out you know that I means these are, these are things that like people like jordan peterson psychologists have noted they're like oh we we're, we don't have free will we're just doing things like yeah we're we are kind of just doing things but it's not exactly deterministic it's that we're acting out patterns that that oftentimes they're very ancient and 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 more than just physical in nature. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And you're that that the the question becomes maybe is that pattern that you're acting out? Are you acting out the pattern, or is the pattern acting, acting out yeah, you? Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and these this is it. It's yes, yes. These these things are these things are simultaneously true. Right. This is what it means then for the church to be the body of Christ. Right. Yes. The church yeah, exactly. is the body of Christ, literally. It's the it's the means by which Christ acts within the world. Yet at the same time, Christ is also a human being. Christ has a human body. So right. the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the body of Christ. And the way that the church acts like the body of Christ is acting like the body of Christ. Yeah. Um, so there was there was a number of things going through uh this podcast that were just, as I was, I was listening to this from a, like, I didn't start listening to this podcast thinking I was going to get converted Eastern Orthodoxy. I started listening to the podcast thinking like, I'm going to learn some interesting stuff about giants in the Bible. And then they start talking about like the ancient Christian understanding of what a body was like, what, a, what body even meant. What was God's body? What is the, um, what was the, uh, the old Testament sacrificial system? What did that mean? What did that, what, were, what was the purpose of that? It wasn't arbitrary. There was very intentional meaning. And a lot of that meaning gets lost if you strip it out of its cultural context. If you understand the way that pagan rituals happened around there and what those pagan rituals meant and what it meant to participate in one of those pagan rituals, it gives whole new, a whole new meaning to what it meant to participate in the, the given rituals from God in the Torah. 
And so it, it, it just, everything essentially was previously I'd been fully persuaded of, I don't know, like the, the validity of Christianity from a propositional perspective, as in like, there's a whole, there's this whole list of beliefs and, and I think these beliefs and I buy into these beliefs mm, and I try yeah. to apply these beliefs in the things that I do. But then apart from that, this, this belief thing is sort of this, this Christian thing is sort of something that's bolted onto the rest of my life. There's kind of like this base secular reality that then we take this belief and we incorporate it into this base existing secular reality. But those things are not separate. You can't, um, there is no base secular reality. All history is Christian history. The, mm. yeah. the church, the church was founded in one form by Christ in AD 33, but this wasn't the inception of a new body. It was the continuation of an existing body. And that right. body had particular traits, and those traits were identified with the rituals that the people participated in. Yep. This and so this was what really um implanted orthodoxy for me was that the rituals themselves matter. They're not just something bolted onto your life. They're the they're a fundamental substrate of your life. Right. Well, this so this reminds me of um we were talking about this at a men's retreat I was on recently and how a lot of Protestants and like we're and we were talking about this as Protestants saying we're guilty of this. We live our Christian walk in a way that is very compartmentalized or the way you put it, like it's bolted on, it's attached in, but it's not, um, it's not something that's transforming us. Right. And like we, so the, mm -hmm. the theme of the, the retreat was Romans 12 and not being transformed, uh, not being conformed to the world, sorry, but rather being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think that, you know, that lines up with what we're talking about here in these patterns. And so, you know, there, there were a lot of things, even though I've been a Christian for a long time and, and I've always, you know, just like you said, it was like presuppositionally and like in a, you know, I, I could make like I, I've, you know, I've read the case for Christ. I've read mere Christianity. If if I needed to, you know, make the defense for a faith for the faith from that, you know, here's the set of propositions and, and syllogisms and, and why God exists and why the resurrection is real. And don't get me wrong. I think that stuff has value. Um, mm -hmm. But that was that's not sufficient for our walk as Christians to just compartmentalize it into a set of, pro of propositions just like jordan peterson says what are you are you what you say you believe or are you what you act out mm -hmm. and you know your, your beliefs are more he's like i don't need to he's like you know more interested in seeing what you do to see what you believe than what you say you believe mm -hmm. um and so you know i was for a long time uh overweight uh addicted to pornography and, you know, living as a, a Christian in terms of like, it was like a, but it was just like a, a, a jacket I put on, right? It was like bumper sticker Christianity. It's like, I'm a Christian, but I hadn't actually been transformed. I hadn't gone through the renewal of your mind and, and whatnot. I, I, I might've been born again in a sense of salvation, but I wasn't born again in terms of, you know, body and, and, and soul or spirit being born again. And so uh, that's been a, a journey I've been on the last two years as well, realizing and a lot of it is um, ritualistic in a sense where it's like, how are we, how are we starting out our day? You know what I mean? How, how are, how are we approaching these different areas of our lives? And are we submitting each of these areas to life of our life to Christ, our King, 
and asking, you know, how do you want me to live out this area of my life? Or are we living in this world as if it's a secular society that we just, you know, Jesus tags along with us into, which is <laughs> completely backwards way to try to live the Christian walk. And so um, anyway, I think it's, it's interesting. You know, I think there's a lot in uh, both Catholicism uh, and, and Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, the, the that, you know, as much as you know, on the like theological levels. And so this is funny. Like I, I'm sure, you know, like on Twitter, people, uh, I think for a long time were making bets, how long it would be until I became either a Catholic or, or Orthodox. And although, you know, mentally I have hurdles to, to both of those on like theological levels. But then like, when I look at the tradition and that both, I think Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy are these vessels of church history and tradition and parts that I think Western Christianity has lost hold of. Um, that's where I see a lot of value in that. And I think that there are a lot of uh, Christians here in the West who are, even if they're not maybe taking the whole, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy pill, they're discovering a lot of these, these old hidden uh, truths and, and wisdoms and, and figuring out how to, you know, rediscover them and reintegrate them into uh, what it means to, to be a Christian and, and to really like live for, his kingdom is, you know, this was something you were talking about on the episode I was chiming in like a month ago, like even something like our physical health. Right. Mm -hmm. And because like, there's so many Christians that like, I remember being at a retreat as a kid with my father and there was this guy there who was like really fit, really just like really healthy, like, like, you know, healthy skin glowing. And the, the speaker there like mocked him for it. He was like, Oh, he's like, you put all this time into your physical health, but you know, that's just more for the worms to eat. And I, I, as a kid, hear that, absorbed it, and kind of, that's how I approached my physical health for mm. a very long time. But then, like, um, now I'd had this transition over the last year, and then everything you were talking about in that podcast I tuned into was exactly what I was experiencing, which was like, no, if we are ambassadors for Christ, then that means every area of our life is going to either give glory to Christ or it's going to be a bad representation and so that includes mm -hmm. our physical health and how we treat our bodies not only that but our walk with christ and our faith is probably going to be affected just on a personal level with, mm -hmm. with how we treat our bodies and stuff and that that is so fundamentally true yeah that's a okay so this is going to seem like a bit of a non sequitur but i promise i'll i'll, I'll tie it back in so <laughs> one of the things that uh you mentioned tradition there and the thing like so a tradition is um if you if you want to think about this in kind of like really autistic terms a tradition is a this is this helps for me because i i kind of suffer from from autism um a tradition is sort of like an encoded pattern of um optimal behaviors that one generation passes on to another it's a a uh, it, it's it's knowledge a tradition is knowledge it's experience being encoded in a particular set of practices. So then a tradition that lasts for a long time, that remains that remains essentially unchanged for a long period of time, this is there's there's information within that very reality. For a tradition to last for a long time, it must necessarily be very very close to reality. It must be an encoded pattern of behaviors that correspond directly to like the the essence of reality. Because that's the only way that it's going to persist for that long, of, that for that for that long. The 
the spirit, this is where the political thing came in. As I was studying liberalism and the way that liberalism functions, it is, or the, the way that liberalism acts, it is essentially a function for eroding tradition. It's like a bug that when inserted into a system perpetually undermines and, de and degrades traditions. It eats traditions and turns them into consolidated political power. And you can see this in the pattern of how, of how every liberal society ever has turned out. It begins, it starts with a ostensibly Christian nation that is built around the premises of the church and the home and the family. And then all of these traditions, like church and home and family, get steadily undermined and degraded and broken down through the atomization of people, through the destruction of human relationships, by setting one group of humans against another group of humans. You start with setting this, this group against this group, and then within this group, you set this group against this group, and then within this group, you set this group against this group, and this it's a bug, like a virus, that then burns its way all the way through a society until it has yep. completely degraded and atomized everyone. Yeah. The fundamental unit of society is not the individual, it's the family. And the family is patterned on our relationship to God. Right. So you have the, the father, who is the head of the family, and then you have... The, the mother. So within those two, you have God, God created man, and then God gave him his, his helpful adversary, his, his constructive, like his, his black mirror sort of, his constructive opponent. And within them, that, that forms an image of humanity, but it, that's not a static image. It's a productive image because fundamentally God is creative. And being made as icons of God means we are creative when we are acting as icons of God. So the fundamental unit of the family then is the, is the father, the mother, and the child together. And that forms a little trinity. This is the foundational unit of society. But liberalism is a, a it's like a, like a, a, a um, what'd you call it? A, a, what's the thing called? It's like, it's like a toxic, a corrosive. It's like a corrosive right. force that dissolves these things. So, to, so then in order to have a stable, healthy society, you have to have strong traditions. You have yeah. to have strong patterns of adaptive behaviors that one generation is passing on to the next. Yeah. And it turns out that every single one of us has traditions because having a tradition is part of being a person, part of being yeah. a human being. The people who attack traditions are a part of the tradition that attacks traditions. They're beholden to their own tradition, which is defined by, as you said, your behavior. Because your beliefs are not the same thing as your thoughts. The thing that differentiates your beliefs from your thoughts is the actions that you take. Right. These are, this, is, this is a Misesian term or Misesian concept. These are revealed preferences. Yeah. Or it's also, your preferences or, are that which is revealed by your behavior. Right. Or you can, you can also say it's what, what James talks about, right? Faith without works is dead. <laughs> yes. yes. It's the same, yes. same concept at work here. And, you know, I, I, I say that as a, as a uh, degenerate Calvinist who, you know, is all about faith alone. <laughs> um, right. So, um, no, I think there's, you know, there, there's something really interesting about, you know, where, where you know, the, the political in line to, to all these things that we're talking about. Because, you know, I remember when I first started getting into kind of podcasting and, and kind of being out there and having public discourse, one of the first debates I did was with a guy who's kind of like you know in our circles and he 
was taking the side of like the enlightenment was good. And so I, I took the opposite side, which wasn't to say, well, the enlightenment is wholly evil, but it's not, you know, I said, it's not, so there's definitely things to to be critical of the enlightenment of like, it's not, I was like, I was like, even if you wanted to say America came from the enlightenment and there are things about America that are good. I was like, you also have, you, you can't, you can't divorce from the enlightenment uh, the French revolution and act like it's only the American revolution. But there are even things about the American revolution that I think have become pathological. And, and so, and, and then that, that debate spar, you know, broke out into like a public discussion on like clubhouse back when that was a big thing. And <laughs> I, uh, I yourself. I, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember talking, making this point to, to, to the people in that room saying that there's such a thing as pathological individualism. And they're like, what do you mean? Hmm. There's a group of libertarians. Like, what do you mean? There's no way individualism can be bad. I was like, well, I was like, you know, I was like, you know, if you, are you guys a big fan of the, you know, the, the, the woke culture and the, the transing the kids and, and all this, you know, it's like, I define my identity and stuff. I was like, where do you think that comes from? And so, you know, that that's, you know, similar to what you're talking about, you know, in terms of the what is the fundamental unit of society. And so I, I tend to agree with you. If if we define liberal values or we were to define libertarianism or or anarcho-capitalism as being inherently a philosophy of individualism, there is, you know, that would be in conflict, I think, with Christian principles to, to some extent. I, I do think, you know, Christianity is a blending of you know, there's elements of it that are individualistic, like where I think, yes, our salvation is experienced on an individual level. Like, I don't think I don't think that God deals with people in, in like a, I mean, there, there's sometimes a collective punishment of nations in the Bible, but it's not like their salvation. It's not like you're damned to hell because of what your father did. Right. Like there are generational consequences, but not when it comes to matters of salvation. That is on an individual level and you are held responsible for what you do. Right. But there is also, as you've mentioned, the family is one example of that. Um, I would say the church and the body of Christ. You know, these are also examples of where there are necessary parts of reality, which we agree, you know, is is Christian reality. It is defined by by, by the scriptures and the church, uh, God's word, you know, that are essentially uh, corporatist or, uh, you know, collectivist in a sense. Um, you know, the problem with individualism and collectivism divorced from Christianity is that they both become pathological because they're not grounded to to truth anymore. They 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 get ground they they get attached to other ideologies that become pathological. And so, if if that is what libertarianism is, I I would under I, I would agree with those criticisms. Um, I, I wonder. Um, so I guess respond to that, and and then I'll I'll bring up a question after that in terms of. Uh, other ways that I think we can define libertarianism or why I still hold to it. But what are your thoughts there, there on what I, I just said? Okay, yeah, this is good. So um, my problem with individualism writ large is that individuals never exist. You never have an individual in the sense that libertarians speak about them. Per personhood is fundamentally a relational category. And we can see this in the Trinity. Even God is not an individual. God is three persons, and right. we are made in his image. So we are made as a relational being. We never exist as an individual. When I'm born, 
I'm not born as an individual. Hmm. I'm born as a son. I'm born as a brother. I'm born as a cousin. I'm born into these relationships and these okay. relationships prevail upon me. I'm subject to these relationships. Right. These relationships bring with them obligations and duties that I am subject to. I'm right. never free of these relationships. Well, and, if, and, and, and not to cut you off, but like if anyone disagrees with that, it's like they've never been married. They've never had kids. Right. Like the way right. you talk to your wife is not the same way you talk to your, your children. Is not the same way you talk to a friend or a coworker. Like you're, you're in a sense acting out a different persona in each one of those different uh, relationships. <laughs> Mm hmm. Right. So there's so there's no there is no abstract concept of the individual. There is no um, there is no atomized individual. It never exists. Right. The only place that it exists is abstracted away from reality. So yeah. in reality, there are no individuals. In reality, there are persons in relationships with one another. There Jason Tubit, he says persons are not individuals. There are unique expressions of a collective tradition. Yeah. This, so the, the, the tradition precedes the person. The family precedes the person. The person never exists as th their, their own self. If there was only one person in the world, this wouldn't be possible because God is three persons and those persons are eternal. Um, yeah. But uh, those are not even eternal. They're timeless. Um, the, uh, so there, even if you create, again, a fake hypothetical reality where there's only one person in the world, you wouldn't you couldn't even call it a person it wouldn't be a person because a person is defined with relationship to another to identify someone as a person is to presume another person with whom they're in a relationship with this is the paradox of identity that when i try to say when i try to call out my identity i try to say here's how i'm different than all these other things what i do is i say here's how i'm the same as all these other things i can only right. relate myself to something else right. so individualism is a um it's an ideological evolution off of base reality where it ports away from base reality and it says there's actually a hypothetical individual and our responsibility is to is to well first of all you can think of this in kind of two directions one of them is it's our responsibility to embody this hypothetical individual which is a form of self-worship or right. the other yeah. one is that it's our job to relate to every single person as if they are a hypothetical individual. But every person is not a hypothetical individual. Every person is a person. We have to relate to them as a person. And those relationships are defined by pre-existing duties and obligations that are imposed upon you by your tradition. So the, the, my, that was my issue. That's why individualism broke apart for me. And then yep. moving on further, I realized that individualism as a concept, the idea of thinking of people as individuals is an evolution. And it's part of this deconstructive force that was liberal. Like liberalism existed before liberalism existed. It was a deconstructive force that was building up and it manifested itself in the form of liberalism by deconstructing the Christian um, society that it was in. It said, we don't need Christianity as the base layer. We need to abstract away from Christianity. Think of a hypothetical base layer and then try to build Christianity back on top of that. And that's what, that's, that was why I moved away from Western Christianity because that was the phenomenon I was seeing there. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I mean, I, I would agree that is a, that is definitely a phenomenon that, that, uh, that, that I've witnessed as well. Um, 
And, and yeah, I, I would say individualism is is a flawed way of looking at the world. Again, I think, you know, just as if you were a pure uh, collectivist, you know, I, I think the Bible kind of, you know, forces us to engage in, uh, you know, engage in a way of understanding human society, of understanding, you know, God, as you said, it was three persons, you know, in a way that isn't isn't even like strictly reducible to just, you know, these human labels of collectivism or individualism. It's 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 not uh reducible to either, I think. Um you know, insofar as I label myself a, a libertarian, it's not because I really I, I wouldn't ascribe myself to that. You know, I'm not I'm not some big champion of individualism or or harping on individual rights. I even think the concept of rights is a little bit muddied. Um, I know libertarians have tried to rescue that by separating them into positive and negative rights. And, you know, like that can be kind of like a good introductory conversation for, you know, non-libertarians, a.k.a. non-autists who are uh, <laughs> you're just trying to like, you know, dip their toe in the water a little bit of of, of these ideas. But I ultimately think it's, it's just really simple. But because it's really simple, this is the problem. This, this is also equally a problem for libertarianism. So so I, I want to see uh, I'll try to fully explain this and see if we agree uh, to me wh where i think libertarianism is useful is in you know the christian has to look at society and look at the different spheres of society that exist right like we have the sphere of the family unit we have the sphere of the church you could say that although i you know i don't really like the idea of public education we could say that like you know there might be a sphere of like some kind of like you know uh, like the community or you know people you know, doing things like education or, or doing, you know, other things so that there's, there's like the, the sphere of the community, I guess. Um, and, and you could label a, a lot of different ones. I do think, and I think the Bible speaks to this, there is a sphere of civil governance, right? Because there are going to be people who commit acts of aggression. And so we as Christians have to have answers to, well, what is the role of those acting in the sphere of civil governance and what are their limitations and like to what end should they be acting and what is their relationship to these other spheres and that has to be well defined so this is why you know one of the things i liked in the reform tradition which i don't know if you ever you know came upon the uh, the dutch reformers and you know kyperianism and so the ideas of sphere sovereignty comprehensive kingdom I, I discovered that and found that that was all in incredibly helpful although i do think to some extent they are reinventing the wheel of of again ideas that are you know that existed before them <laughs> but so w where i define myself as a christian libertarian if that's even a useful label it is in answering the question of when is the use of force justified and specifically when is the use of force by civil authorities justified and also how do we hold those who are in civil authority, like to what, do, you know, how do we view them in terms of their powers? What are they delegated to and who holds them? You know, they, they have to be accountable to someone, right? And so I, I believe as a Christian that those who are acting in civil authority need to be accountable to the very rules that they are trying to administer. So these are where I, I find libertarian ideas are useful, not, not coming from that, like, you know, maybe from the ideas of, of, the liberal tradition or enlightenment, but just in terms of like just understanding governing structures and then understanding free markets 
you know, and understanding the, the, uh, this is where I think the Misesian school is, is still very valuable and, and infusing that understanding into what the, the scriptures teach and then coming to the, you know, I come to the conclusion that we need systems of governance that, uh, basically end up looking very much like, you know, what I would describe like Hopi and covenant communities. Right. And I, I think, uh, you know, you can describe that as anarcho-capitalism. You could, you know, I know our friend, our mutual friend, Andrew Pierce, who uh, used to go by Popular Liberty. You know, he describes it as private, pri- privatized monarchy. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. That's that's the, uh, uh, you know, the, the cool the cool way to, to describe it. But it's, you know, kind of the same thing. So I, I find, you know, that's kind of like what I like to talk about. I like to, to, to speak to Christians and ask them to ask these critical questions about those who are in government uh, those who are, you know, trying to manipulate Christians into supporting things like wars, especially like supporting, sending billions of dollars to support like nations like Israel and the wars that they're engaging in and things like that. And I find that that is an important thing for the Christian to think about. Like we can't be divorced from the sphere of civil governance or politics. But so this is this is then the uh, the flip side of this. The problem is you need that Christian element, I think, for libertarianism to have any value because libertarianism in and in and out. So like, you hear a lot of libertarians say this. Well, it's just a thin philosophy. And yes, it is a a uh, it's like an anorexic philosophy. It is it, it, if it, it, philosophy might even be too strong a word. It is very narrow in its scope. And the problem is a lot of libertarians the, the secular types, they are trying to expand it beyond that narrow utility into an entire worldview, which is, I think, kind of what you're talking about. They're like liberalism and the Enlightenment is sort of like trying to take these ideas of, of uh, you know, maybe being critical of governing structures and analyzing the u- utility or, or the, the, the right use of force or things like that, and then trying to derive from that more than what it, you ought to or divorcing those um intellectual exercises from the ethos that they're rightfully nestled in which i would say is the christian worldview which is the only legitimate worldview and so that is where libertarianism goes wrong is i think when you try to make it more than what it is um and that can become become dangerous because i think that the only way we can actually not not only the only way can we really make sense of libertarian ideas i think the only way you could actually incentivize a society to operate along something that would be functionally, uh, you know, or pragmatically labeled as something approximating libertarian has to come from a Christian culture, a Christian ethos. And, you know, some libertarians have, have to their credit, n- noted this, that like, yeah, not all cultures are equally compatible with libertarianism. They just need to take that to its logical conclusion. Like, well, then what are the cultures that are compatible? And I think the only ones that would be are, are, are Christian ones. So anyway, so that's, hopefully that made sense, kind of like that, that little, uh, you know, arc I went on there. What 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 do you mm-hmm. think about that? Like, where would you agree and where would you disagree? I've got a lot of thoughts on this. So this is something I've spent a very long time thinking about. The conclusion that I came to is, um, like I said earlier, all history is Christian history. There is no there is no secular history. There is no um, base history that then we apply a Christian lens onto. All history is Christian history. For that reason libertarianism needs Christianity. Christianity doesn't need libertarianism. And the reason I say this is because 
we, if we go back to the fundamental unit of the family, which is the father, the mother, and the child, what you have there instantiated immediately is hierarchy. And that hierarchy is comprised of different elements that each have a defined role. They have this, this, this uh, set of obligations, if you want to think of it that way. They have this, this pattern that they're born into, and their responsibility is to live according to that pattern. This pattern is fundamentally hierarchical. And this is, we, we derive this from the Trinity and from our relationship to the Trinity and from the Trinity itself. The, the term monotheism is, is very, very new. And this isn't because Greeks like didn't know how to take monos and theos and put them together. They didn't speak of monotheism. They spoke of monarchy where mon means one and archy means principle. One principle, the monarchy of the father. The father is the principle. The son is the icon of the father. They're co-eternal with one another. We then are created as icons of God. So the son is an icon of the father. We are icons of God. Our job is to image or to icon as a verb. Our, our job is to icon God according to the role that we find ourselves in. So when I'm born, I'm born as a son. My right. responsibility then is to embody the role of a son, the role that has been given, the role that has been preserved in Christian tradition for the role of the son. As I grow, as I develop, as I get smarter, as I uh, learn more, become more experienced, I'll be given more. I'll be given more talents, like the parable of the talents. The yep. more talents that I'm given, the, the larger pattern I, that I'm stepping into. And that pattern corresponds to responsibilities. So my, my roles are pre-designated for me by the pattern that I'm stepping into actively yep. in real time. So then if you are given talents, your responsibility is to use those talents. The family is the fundamental unit of society. As the family grows, you get more children. The children have siblings there. If you think of this as just like a... Uh, um, if you had a, I don't know, a, a, a tribe that that dissolved, like all that was left was one family that escaped and they went out into the wilderness and they're going to start a start a civilization over again. How are they going to do this? It's going to start where you have the father and the father is the one that everyone defers to. The father says, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. He's the one who has the most responsibility and the most power because of that. As the family grows, he's going to eventually go from being the father to being kind of like the patriarch or the chieftain or the the tribal leader, the chief, all of these are all elaborations on this same pattern where eventually you're going to have the man who's at the top, who is the one by being at the top of the, of the pyramid, he's actually at the bottom because he's the one yeah. who's carrying everyone else on his shoulders. And this, this is what Jesus said, you know, when he said, if, you know, uh, Mark 10, 42, where he said, if you want to be, if any of you seeks to be the greatest among you, he must become the least, become a servant, just as yes. the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and be poured out as a ransom for many. Yes. So we, yeah. we then, our responsibility is to sacrifice ourselves, not focus on ourselves and start with ourselves as the fundamental unit of society, but to sacrifice ourselves into the hierarchy. Yep. We become the least by, by giving ourselves over into the hierarchy. This is why this is the context for Roman thir Romans 13, where we are called to obey the civil leaders. It doesn't matter if the civil leaders are massively corrupt. It doesn't matter if they're evil and they're killing everyone. Your, their authority that they've been given 
was given to them by God. God is the one who put them in that position, and he will judge them for what they do with that authority. It's not our responsibility. Our job is to, is to obey them until they get us to try to do something that is, that is uh, uh, directly against the commandments of, of, of God. So and, until, they're, until they're inducing you into sinning, your responsibility is to obey them. This is why you have a Christian duty to pay your taxes. You also have a Christian duty to navigate the tax system as best as you can to ensure that you pay the least amount of taxes. Well, yeah. I mean, I would even say, in, in, even in the instances where the, uh, the civil authority is trying to uh, force you into disobedience and you obviously can't do that, you then even probably ought to submit to the punishment and trust yes. that either God will deliver you or not. And that's the whole premise. That's why my first podcast was Daniel 3, because I think that is actually the Christian response to um, to, to corrupt governments. And, mm-hmm. and I think, and so I, you know, I, I uh, when you when you first started there, I started to get a little autistic. I was like, well, I don't know if I, but when you finally ended, I was like, okay, I kind of agree with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, because it, it, it's tough, because I, I think, yes, um, that is our response in terms of what we we do. I don't think we're to to be, uh, you know, like revolutionaries or or actually, I think if anything, this is repeated like in second, uh, wait, the first or second Peter chapter two. I think it's first Peter chapter two, where he says the way that we deal with persecution is to do good on to them. And then in that context, he says honor to the emperor, and and he says we do all this to make make evil men look foolish. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is how we that is how God ultimately acts through us to overcome uh, evil is by us doing good unto them. And and thus mm-hmm. and then we preserve our character. We preserve um, the character of God by being above reproach. Right. But that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we can't also um, be, be, you know, be critical and be mindful of the ways in which, you know, people might be abusing their power, might be acting corruptly. But I, I would agree with you that ultimately it's not in our uh it's not our role to then try to take out vengeance against unjust rulers um or at least that wouldn't be what i would say is normative i mean cuz there are i guess examples in the bible where they do take out like there were some judges who took out some some unjust rulers so i don't know if i'd make a hard rule of this but i do think what is generally normative would be that yeah we, we should trust god to to be this is what says romans 12 vengeance is mine um, mm-hmm. so we, we should generally, I think, operate as that being our first assumption. Think about King David, King David, who is the archetype for the King. He was the man after God's own heart mm-hmm. in the old Testament. He was given the opportunity to slay Saul. And he said, and he no, yeah, no. Yeah. He said he is God's anointed. It doesn't matter how bad of a King he is. He's God's anointed. Your, your responsibility. You can think of it kind of this way. I think this, this analogy, I think works well with, um, with the, the autism in, in libertarian circles, I, this, it worked well on me. So, um, if you think of hierarchy as, um, as like, like there's nodes on this hierarchy and each one of us is, we have a place in this hierarchy. We are a node on the hierarchy. If one of the nodes goes offline, this would be the kind of the parallel to someone stepping out of their prescribed role. This is someone abusing their authority or neglecting their authority, which is a form of abuse. If somebody is out of their place in the hierarchy, then you, as your node, removing yourself from your proper place and going to try to fill their role or or fix them. That's going to create a ca- cascading problem. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that person, there's someone who's in the hierarchy above them. That's their responsibility. 
Right. It's not my responsibility to solve the problem of a broken hierarchy above me. It's right. the people at the, above the on the hierarchy who are above the problem. It's their responsibility to fix it. If they don't, God will judge them for it. Now, this also, is where there is a means by which I can elevate myself within the hierarchy by taking on more responsibility, more responsibility yep. to myself. Yep. Then I might be elevated to where then I can fix that problem. No, another thing that, that this this is now going at full speed into a topic that is fundamental to, to liberalism and enlightenment values that I think you and I would both be critical of, which is the idea of the separation of church and state, mm-hmm. which I think is, it, it, it sounds good on paper to people. It's like, well, yeah, we don't want the church running the state. And we think about, uh, look at all the European wars that happened because of all these warring religious factions. And, and yeah, that is a, that's true. That did happen. Although I would say to a large extent, it wasn't solely religious reasons why they were warring. I think sometimes that's just the the clothing that was going on, the political, uh, you know, motivations behind, you know, struggles over power and land more, more so than anything else. Um, but, but ultimately, so what you said there, I agree with a hundred percent, which is uh, the two options are either a, you need to elevate yourself up the hierarchy or you need to stay in your place you know, maybe in the long run, try to work up your way, but in, in the short term, the solution to people who are abusing power should be that there needs to be a check above them. That, that it's their role to do that. Well, ultimately, the, the the final check is God, right? But then, what is in human society the institution that should be the normative check on those who are in civil power? And the minute you say separation of church and state, you've removed the check. That was on the state. And you're saying mm-hmm. the state is now, um, at least in terms of, you know, if, the, the practical um, human agents and whatnot, there's now nothing above the state anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's separation, the problem. So, yeah. Separation of church and state is the formula for creating an atheistic state by definition. It, right. If you separate church and state, then this this you've now created a state that is atheistic and a, and a state is not te- in technical terms. A state cannot be atheistic. It cannot well, the state be... becomes a church of its own, exactly. a, a, a satanic yes. church, which is what yes. I was about. This is what I thought of. So two pit podcast said, separating the church from the state only results in separating man from the church. Well, yeah, he's separated from the true church. He then becomes the member of a different church. Right. <laughs> and this is, this is the project of liberalism. This is what I was beginning to, 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 yeah come to, to derive, I guess, is that liberalism is a competing religious philosophy attempting to erect a competitor to the church in the form of the state, in form of the total state. The personal is the political. The state has a domain over every single aspect of your life because a state presumes a morality. A state is an enforcement mechanism for morality. You can't, you can't have the, the church and the state be separate from one another. They're they're fundamentally the same thing. In a, in a in a proper Christian society, the emperor or the 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 CEO or the the chieftain or whatever you want to call him, the guy who's at the top who has all of the responsibility, he is subordinated to the church. He goes to the church and submits himself to the church. He's a member of the church who is submitted to the church, who recognizes his role within the church. He has a spiritual father above him in the church. This is the orthodox structure. He has a spiritual father above him in the church. He submits to that man. 
Right. He takes that man's spiritual guidance. This man is his spiritual mentor. Even though he's the top of the civil structure, he's submitted to the church. And the church, likewise, respects the authority of the civil structure. Even if it's wrong, even if it's misbehaving, the church's responsibility isn't to act by force to no. throw out the, the emperor and replace him with someone else. Which the emperor's did, responsibility yeah. is to rule well. If he doesn't rule well, God will judge him. And sometimes that judgment will come in the form of an angry person assassinating him or dying of a heart attack or making some bad or, decision. Or, or, or uh, a Catholic priest refusing to give you mass. Yeah, right. <laughs> like right. Yeah, right. A, uh, um, uh, who that happened to? Was, was that Pelosi? Uh, I think that happened uh -huh. to. Yeah, that was yeah. that was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, that, that, that is an example of what we're missing. Like, that is what Protestantism is. Like, Protestant, Protestantism, in a functional sense, has so little or practically functionally zero impact on culture. So this is one of the things that, that I'm that I'm that I'm struggling with because even though again in a practical theological sense, if I'm just like talking about propositions. I, I, I'm still on the Protestant side, but it is harder from that Protestant level. It's something that me and Andrew talked about a lot. It's harder from this Protestant level to really have an impact on culture and society, including being that being a, a check of some sort on on, on governing structures in, in terms of civil governance. Um, it's just not built that way because it's so uh, deintegrated. It, it, it's like mm -hmm. it's not a sphere that. You know, and as much as I like the ideas of 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 the Dutch Calvinists and the idea of sphere sovereignty, I like the ideas of you know, we, in, in Protestantism, there's this idea of like you have you, there's a a two kingdoms view, and then there's the comprehensive kingdom view, and the two kingdoms view is like well, you have dual citizenship. You're you're a citizen of of the kingdom of heaven, but then you're also a citizen of like your nation state. And I'm like, I don't like that. That sounds too much like serving two masters, which Jesus said no bueno. So don't like that. Whereas the comprehensive kingdom view uh, is summed up by, I like this view about this uh, statement by Abraham Kuyper, who says there isn't one corner of creation that God, uh, that Jesus Christ doesn't look at and loudly proclaim mine. And I think, well, that, that's the role of the church, right? We are the body of Christ. So I think, and I agree with you, like not by force, but through just the, that hierarchical authority and influence on communities and society then more broadly building up from that the church needs to be the the voice of truth that is um you know sort of the center of all these diff different spheres and impacting them and guiding them along the path of truth and the path of wisdom and and the church under liberalism has removed itself from that role and everything we see around us is the reaping of of uh, the consequences of what liberalism sowed. So let me think of how to how to approach this. So <clears throat> there's a sense. I'll give I'll give my perspective here. My you're 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 sort of grappling with this. How do we relate? How do we relate these concepts? And this is the way that I see them relating. I think that um, Protestantism is. Broadly speaking, I mean, it, it's almost becoming a term that's difficult to use because it encompasses so many, what does it so many mean? different things, right? Yeah. And every <laughs> single one of them all rejects all the other ones. Says, "No, you don't part of it. You know, you we don't." It's it's kind of this scrap, scrap um, like scrapping factional factionalism, and part of that is 
what I'm saying, this this force that that manifested as liberalism that began, that's this disintegrative force that disintegrates society, that breaks it down and consumes it and turns everybody into passive consumers. This force has already infiltrated Protestantism. That's part of what made Protestantism was the this force mm-hmm. making its way into the church and beginning to divide and split and break the church apart. It began watering down the church, and it was through this method of critique, of of um, setting up the tradition and then critiquing the tradition and trying to find the parts that are wrong with it and trying to break apart and separate from the parts that you think are wrong. Right, it's rather the breaking than breaking apart to the hierarchy, and it's the breaking apart that's the the, the issue. Because I, you know, mm-hmm. listen, it, there is a, you know, we talk about revisionist history, right? There is a a a alternate universe of revisionist history where Martin Luther is a great Catholic hero who stayed mm-hmm. and helped to reform some things that were that were wrong in the church. That, by the way, a lot of the things that Cath that that uh, Martin Luther pointed out were were eventually like adopted or changed then later by the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. right? So it's like Martin Luther could have become a Catholic, you know, legend or hero, you know, a great saint. I think that was and, his intent. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and instead. The tradition we have now is, it, it, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, and so there, there's a lot of, I mean, problems with Protestantism because the only, I mean, Protestantism is almost like atheism in that it's not a institution with a positive, positive ethos. It is really a, a tradition of negation. Mm-hmm. And it, you can't really, how can you build anything positive out of that tradition? I mean, I, I, it's listen, an I anti-tradition. I, right. Like I, I tried my best to find the best Protestant apologists to try to like, like where is the positive Protestant tradition? And they're like, well, it's in the five solas. And I'm like, that, that that's just not, it's not enough. I mean, because they don't, not even all Protestants agree on that even anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, look at the mainline churches here in America. Like they've abandoned the five solas. They don't believe like, I mean, I know Catholics and Orthodox kind of scoff at sola scriptura, but like, Protestants don't believe in sola scriptura anymore. They're like, uh, you know, the, the the Bible. I mean, a lot of mainline Protestants don't even believe the Bible is God breathed or uh, the the Word of God. They they just believe it's a a bunch of you know ancient texts that it's like the Constitution, right? It's a living, breathing document that can say anything we want it to say. And so, mm-hmm. it's like what 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 unites Protestants? Like. I, it, so, Nothing so the real. thing, the critique that libertarians make about the about the Constitution that the Constitution standing alone is powerless. That right, the it's the body that interprets it. It's the body that implies it. That that, that applies it rather. The you can't separate the text from the body. If you separate the text from the body, you fall immediately into radical subjectivism, yep. where now every single man is a pope. Every single man is the one who's looking at scripture for the first time and trying to decipher what it means through his own lens of his own experience. Well, and then there's, I'm not saying that there aren't, there aren't, uh, that reading the word of God doesn't have a powerful transformative impact on you. I'm saying that's just the start. That's just a fraction of the story. That text has a church that compiled that text because it's the description of the history of a people. It's the description of a history of people who encountered God and they explained what they encountered in God, what he told them, what he commanded them to do, and how he interacted with the world. And they put this together into a text so they could say, if you want to know these things, here's where you can look. 
but we have this body of people as well, where you can be a part of this tradition. You can partake in this tradition with us with all of the benefits that come with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I ultimately end up in the reformed camp because, well, there's like two reasons. One, geographically speaking, there is just not a, there's no Eastern Orthodox churches around me that I, that, that, that are feasible to even check out if I was interested in, in checking it out. Uh, mm-hmm. And all the Catholic churches around me are infiltrated by, by, by woke progressives. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so I, uh, the church I'm a part of is a, is, is reformed. And I find that within Protestantism, the reformed churches, um, at least the, the ones that I associate with tend to be the ones who have the deepest appreciation for church tradition within Protestantism that they actually mm-hmm. seek to rescue uh, kind of like that Jordan Peterson language, like rescue your father from the, from the, from the, uh, the dragon in the underworld and things like that. And so the reformed people, I think traditions and stuff have, I, you know, they do like, I remember, uh, you know, something I, something that started me in my, my appreciation for Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism was uh, a reformed pastor saying this, like we have to speak against those in Protestantism who have this, like, prejudice towards catholics and and eastern orthodox because for thousands of years to be a christian meant that you were one of those two and so like if we're gonna act like christianity just didn't exist until the 1600s or the 1700s or the 1800s or if you're some baptists like it didn't exist until my church in southern you know, Kentucky in 2005 when, you know, it's like, you know, like if you're going to do that, like, man, you are just on, on such shaky ground. And you're basically saying Christianity hasn't existed for, you know, again, if, anywhere from 1500 to 2000 years until, you know, this one sect got it right, you know, and, and that's, that, that, that is a, a incredibly uh, damaging problem. And so, I mean, it's, especially because it's not that it's, it's not just that it's wrong; it's that it's so, it's so damaging to the to the like the, the yeah. by by believing that you're damaging yourself to the people that believe that because what you're doing is you're depriving yourself of the history of Christianity. Well, and then which you're again, also, all history yeah. is Christian history, right? And then, but then you're damaging yourself, and then you are also doing harm to the gospel because mm-hmm. you you know I mean to some extent it's like you know what I almost understand why we have this atheist problem like i almost don't even sometimes sometimes i'm even like when i talk to atheists it's like man like i don't i mean i guess like i do kind of hold you accountable for rejecting god but i don't part of me is almost sympathetic to them because i'm like you were not brought up around real christianity like you didn't mm-hmm. it's like how how much of atheism is people who haven't really rejected christianity they've just rejected the abomination of the american church mm-hmm. <laughs> that claims mm-hmm. to be christianity and isn't you, you know what i mean and so right. um you know and I, I but to some extent i think that's why you know a lot of protestants have noticed that there is kind of this uptick like a revival of sorts of young people who are uh coming back to the faith but they are doing it more so through the pipeline of Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, especially Catholicism, like when people go to like uh, Latin mass and stuff, because they're mm-hmm. getting, they're, they're not being sold this Americanized watered down deconstructed version of Christianity. They're being sold, you know, the pat, and it's like, you know what, again, 
even me as a Protestant who, listen, I, I, have, I, I don't know if I agree with papal authority. And my, my, my problem with Eastern Orthodoxy is really just ignorance because it's hard to learn about Eastern Orthodoxy <laughs> when there's no Eastern <laughs> well, Orthodoxy. I can Orthodoxy give you resources video. if you want. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I don't even have any deep, you know, I don't have any deep, like, uh, disagreement there. Um, that's more of a practicality of I, I could agree with everything they believed and just be like, well, you know, unless I'm willing to get up my family and move somewhere, I have to decide what I have to do. But uh, whatever, whatever theological disagreements I could have, it's like, I don't know, if, like you, you, if you judge a tree by their fruits, the, uh, the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox are doing some of the heavy lifting right now in terms of bringing people back to the faith. And in actually, I think, you know, being that positive representation for, for Christ and his kingdom. And that's, you know, that's ultimately what I, what I care about here. You know what I mean? Like and when I talk about politics, you know, it's funny, like my, when, when people at my church or like friends, you know, discover I have a podcast and I tell them the premise, they're like, Oh, you're talking about politics a, a lot. I'm like, actually probably like 85% of what I talk about is like theology and spirituality and stuff. Because like that, that like politics is just like the, uh, I don't know, whatever the opposite. Cause like, like I should actually say this the other way, religion and, uh, theology are like the the meta truths and politics is really nestled underneath of those like politics is just like a a secular way about talking about things that are all you said this earlier about talking about things that are ultimately religious or spiritual or mystical in nature and so like like uh i've seen you've been critical talking about the christian support for for zionism and you know and things like that there's a big problem of dispensationalism and the american church and so uh, i mean I, I have two podcasts out so far in the, just the past month alone where I'm just reading the scripture and showing where dispensationalists are wrong and where Zionism is wrong on biblical grounds. And it's like, I guess this was a political podcast. It's like, well, it is because our theology and our, our spiritual beliefs, they impact what, you know, further down the line, what the political views are, right? If we don't have these things right, then everything else is going to be wrong. We have to have that firm foundation. That's, and then, that's important for our political views, and it's important for the, the the thing that matters the most, which is being ambassadors for Christ and His kingdom. And that's you know that's that's ultimately what I think that we're called uh, to live for. You know, everything we do, how mm -hmm. we how how you know the way in which we serve our wives, the way in which we serve our families as as the head of the household, the the way in which we engage in our communities, what we do at the workplace. You know, everything we do is is a rep to, to the people around us as a representation of Christ to that person, a representation of, of this tradition spanning back thousands of years. Uh, and, and not even just back to, I like to, um, losing my voice a bit here. I like what you said earlier that this isn't even just traced back to Christ. Like this is, this is a tradition that goes back just even pre, not, not really pre Christ, pre Christ in terms of the incarnation, but Christ, you know, the word was with God in the beginning. Right. So there really is nothing pre Christ, but um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in the, the the messianic sense you know this this goes back all the way to abraham and and before that to the garden and all that like this is you know we are in the we are the inheritors of the promises of abraham through christ and th this is why dispensationalists are wrong but then more importantly this is the beauty of the tradition of christianity and this is just not what enough people both Christians and non-Christians are taught in 
in our society today. And I think that is something that that really needs to change if we're going to because like I, I mean, listen, like as much as I care about uh, war, as much as I care about governments being held uh, accountable or being critical of them where they abuse their power, like none of that's going to be set straight if we don't set things straight first in our homes and our communities and in our churches to to get people back onto that path of understanding reality and truth, right? And isn't that, I think it's kind of the theme of what we talked about here, right? Is that we need to understand the truth and the truth of the reality we live in is way deeper than what we have been led to believe. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I hate that phrase. I don't know why I said that. Ultimately, <laughs> um, uh, religion is not doctrine. Religion is practice. Religion is ritual. The word religion, religio, is uh, the the Latin term religio is like like the thing that binds. It's like the thing that binds the, the the society together. The thing that the common thread that everybody shares that unites them. Human beings are fundamentally relational and personal. We exist in these relational dynamics, and these map onto, or they don't map onto, but these reflect. Or these are a type of the relationship that we have with God and the relationship that that the Father has with the Son and with the Spirit. These these it's 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 relationships all the way down. So what you're what defines Christianity is not the propositions that you mentally assent to. Yep. What defines Christianity is the practices that you have, that you embody, the way that you act in your life, your behaviors, and your consistent behaviors, your consistent repeated behaviors. These are what define who you are. An example of this was the Passover. You know, the, the, at the story of the Passover, everyone knows, you know, you had the, the, um, the people were called out of Egypt. God's people, God called his people out of Egypt. And they, <clears throat> the, the, the sign of who was, who, of who constituted Israel at that point was the people who painted the, the blood, blood on their doorposts. And it wasn't just Israelites who painted. It wasn't like like we, we sort of think of this as a a um you know you have like the uh, Egyptians that we see on hieroglyphics and stuff that they have like their their like super straight black hair and their um and their like uh, uh, loincloths sort of and they're shirtless and like we think of them and then we think of the Israelites as being kind of like you know like Moses in the Ten Commandments movie they're the people with, like long beards and hair and they got the long swooshing cloaks and stuff and we think of these as two like distinct groups of people. And God just came and took all of his Israelites and pulled them out of Egypt. But that's not how it worked. If you actually read the text, anyone who painted with the blood on the doorpost Mm. was protected from the angel of death. So there were Egyptians who said, oh, okay, your God says this. We believe your God because we see these demonstrations of his power. If your God says, paint the doorposts, I'm painting the freaking doorposts. They expressed their faith actively with this ritual that everyone partook in. So it was by, so it was by faith and not by works or by, by ethnicity or blood. It, well, yeah, but yeah, but, but it's not. But it, that, 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 that the foreshadows. faith was a work. In a sense, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was yeah, the thing, this physical, this physical thing they had to do that was both real and symbolic. And that was what identified them as God's people. That was that was the the founding of the nation of Israel in the biblical sense. So then that pattern has persisted ever since then. 
the people who are identified as God's people are the people who consistently participate in the rituals that he has given them, the ritual behaviors that define them. That's what picks them out from the other nations. The other nations were the people who participated in different rituals. That was what defined them because they didn't have 23 and me back then. They weren't like taking DNA tests or like, you know, across hundreds of years, you're not going to be like, Oh, well, you're so-and-so's son who is so-and-so's son who's so-and-so's son who's so-and-so's son. Like the way that you identified a group of people was we're all the people who live in one area and do the same things together. Hmm. The people is defined by the rituals that, that it, it, it partakes. So the church as the inheritors of the tradition of Israel are again, the group of people who are defined by their participation in the ritual practices that have been given to us through divine revelation in the, in the form of the church and scripture as part of that tradition. This is, this is the orthodox understanding. This is, I, I this is an original to me. I got this from Lord of spirits. This is something they go into in great detail in Lord of spirits. And it was that, they did like a three-part episode on sacrifice. What sacrifice actually means in the Bible? It's it. The shortest version is it's correlated with hospitality. It's eating a meal. Sacrifice means eating a meal, eating a meal with your God. And like, yeah. crucifixion is when God offers Himself as the meal that you're eating. So now you're not right. just eating a meal with your God. The meal that you're eating with your God is His body. Yeah. No, I like that. I mean that that. I have never heard that before. And that really maps on to everything else then, you know, again, relating to uh, who, who is, you know, who is the true Israel, right? And, you know, Galatians 6 says that Christ is the, the Israel of God. And, you know, when, when you just said, like, you know, God called his people out of Egypt, this reminds me of, uh, there, there, so my, uh, my family is Jewish, and I often have uh, debates with my father who doesn't believe that Christ is the Messiah. And he like he, he tried making this argument once that Matthew misquotes uh uh I think it's Hosea when he says out of Egypt I called my son he's like well that wasn't about Jesus and but then like when you look into it it's like oh well, no it Matthew isn't saying when Hosea said this he was talking about Jesus rather he is saying Jesus is the true Israel and that in the same way Israel was called out of the desert. And then had to travel through the wilderness and then was called to become a royal priesthood and a blessing to the nations. But then they failed to do that. Christ didn't fail. Christ was called out of Egypt, tra- traveled through the, the, the wilderness, passed those trials, then became the royal priest and became the blessing to the nations and established the real promised kingdom. And so check this out. You'll like this. To add on to that, that's all. That's that's correct. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. And to add on to that, you had Abraham, who was called out of Ur, and he was called into the. Um, he began going through the land, and he was setting up these these altars. So he went through and he set up twelve altars, which ultimately was going to stand for the twelve tribes of Israel, which presages the twelve apostle apostles. Right. So Abraham has the twelve altars. The twelve altars. foretell the 12 tribes of Israel, which itself foretells the 12 apostles. In the midst of this, Abraham like goes to town essentially, because he's out in the wilderness and he goes into town. He goes to Egypt, which is like the big metropolis. Abraham goes to Egypt. He says, the Abraham, the man who's identified with his faith, he says, oh no, I've got this hot wife 
Pharaoh's going to think that you are my, um, that that uh, he's going to kill me so he can take you as his wife. So we're going to say that you're actually my sister. And and Pharaoh's like, hey, you've got a hot wife. We're, I'm going to take her as a uh, um, as one of my wives. And Abraham's kind of like, oh well. I guess Abram at the time he's like, well, yeah. you know, and and he and and Pharaoh pays Abram this huge dowry in return for because like it makes sense. Hey, you're 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 her you're her brother. You're the one who who vouches for her. You're 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 the one who who gets the dowry. Then Pharaoh is the one who recognizes it, that all these plagues happen, and Pharaoh's like, dude, what the hell? Like, why did you why why'd you lie to me? Pharaoh is actually the one who is the voice of God to Abram. Pharaoh's the one who who steps mm. in and he says, "No, we need to make this right so that your God gets stops being pissed off at me." <laughs> and so he says, "Take your wife and get out of here and keep the dowry." So then God works through his means and he draws Abram, who's going to become the father of Israel, draws him out of Egypt. Mm. Then, so this is the first instance of this pattern. Right. Then generations later, Israel winds up back in Egypt again. You get plagues, He's called back out of his people are called out of out of Egypt. In this sense, Israel is the body of Christ, and it's also Christ's people. It's the same thing at the same time. Right. Christ is born. He has to escape. Where does he go? He goes to Egypt, and then he comes back out of Egypt again. So you get this this same pattern happens three times. Right. You have. Abraham, the father of Israel, you have Israel and you have Christ. And this is three types of the same pattern. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And I just, yeah, I, I don't see how people can read this stuff and not just be blown away. I mean, there's just, yeah. they're, they're, we could, we could go another hour and a half on, on just, just nerding out on, on all the different patterns and, and, and just kind of going into a theological fest here. Uh, maybe that's what we'll do next time you come on, but uh, we are coming here to a close uh, this has been a lot of fun. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, I guess like in the circles I run in who I think give like you and like, I guess like people who are, I don't know, loosely in your camp. I don't know if you really have a camp. Everyone likes to call you guys the post libertarians and, and act like you all believe the same thing, which, which has always, <laughs> always made me a little bit, you know, irksome. Um, cause I think that even where I disagree with you guys, I think you guys have, have valid criticisms things that people should 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 consider um even if they don't wholesale agree um and you all have different perspectives but but you just uh, as an individual um again i feel like there's a lot that we agree on to some extent you know we're coming from different traditions and so we will put slightly different framings on it but i think we're working out the same problems and trying to figure out how to urge people and especially christians to find a way to solve the problems that are facing society and really that are facing the, you know, these are problems for the church to solve. I think that's something that you and I would ultimately agree on that, uh, you know, we need to wake up brothers and sisters in Christ to actually go out and, um, you know, do the gospel and preach the gospel. And that, no, that doesn't mean just, you know, standing in your street corner, holding up a, you know, repent ye sinners sign. And, and like, no, it, it means going out and doing uh, true religion. It means, taking care of things at home, everything we've talked about. So I think this was a good conversation to uh, to really explore those ideas and figure out, you know, the few things we disagree on, but really to explore the, the ways in which we we do agree on a lot of this. And so I hope people are uh, take some value out of that. Um, 
before we get out of here, Matt, I uh, wanted to give you any closing thoughts, uh, any closing statements you want to make in terms of just, you know, everything we've talked about, as well as like, you know, a chance to plug your podcast and plug anything else you, you think people should recommend reading or looking into if they kind of are interested in the things that we talked about and they want to like dive into, you brought up already a few different books and things that you read. So, you know, anything that you think people should look into if they want to, you know, chase down the hundred different, you know, rabbit trails we opened up in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you, if you want to be uh, afflicted with my afflictions of having all of these tabs open in my mind at the, at the same time and trying to keep track of all of them. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I appreciate this. This has been great. I, uh, it's been a long time coming and uh, I appreciate your, uh, the fact we've had disagreements, we've, we've spatted back and forth, but it's always been, um, it's always been respectful and, and, uh, I appreciate you giving me the platform to come here and talk to you about this stuff. Um, and I'd be totally happy to come back again in the future. Um, I guess the, the, the thing that I'll leave you with is, is my, my show that, that I've been, um, been, been rebooting here. My buddy and I, Cooper are, um, really looking at, we're both Orthodox. We're both, um, uh, coming from that perspective, but it's not it's not an orthodox show per se. what we're what we see is that there's a crisis among the um just generally kind of guys online who are broadly, some of them are libertarian, some of them are 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 you know hoppian, some of them are monarchists, some of them are are just right wing. there's there's kind of a big milieu of guys who are online. but there's there's a whole bunch of talking, but there's not a lot of doing. Hmm. there's yeah. there's a bunch of of kind of blathering. But there's a a fundamental part. I, I say this as someone who's sitting here talking and who has a podcast where I talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, part of being a man is being productive, mm. being creative, being generative. Creation is not a um, is not a static concept. Creation is a is a is a is an emergent verb, and part of being made in the image of of God is that we are creative. And this creativity starts with man. Men are the principle of their family. You're, if you don't have a family, you need to get one. You need to, you need to discipline yourself to the point where you get one. If you have a family, you don't need to be worrying about whatever political thing is going here or there or whatever political party there is or whatever. Your fundamental responsibility needs to be securing safety and security and prosperity for your family, investing in your family and protecting them through whatever may come, being prepared to navigate whatever the system throws at you, regardless of how you feel about it. You yep. need to first be able to act in this world, to instantiate yourself with power and influence and generate value for other people such that it insulates you from whatever turbulence we may encounter. If you've done that, if you're at that point, then you can proceed to the next level, which again needs to be fundamentally creative, not a critique. Critique is is, is limited in efficacy. Your entire praxis can't be can't be critique. It can't be peanut gallery stuff. You need to be investing yourself in bettering your own skills, bettering your own health, bettering your own family. Make more babies. If you already have some, make more. <laughs> Jacob, my man here, is making babies. He's, he's living this out. Having children as a man is the most important thing you can do. It's the fundamental praxis for a man is having children because that's the fundamental procreative capacity. This is what will make you feel like a man. So if you feel overwhelmed or, or um, like 
you're just kind of blackpilled with everything that's happening. It just seems like there's no hope or there's it's everything is such long odds. And you're, you're kind of just sort of sleepwalking through life, waiting for whatever to come. Everyone's kind of just sort of like waiting for something. It's like, there's something out there and it's coming and we're just sort of bracing ourselves and waiting for it to come. I'm here to say it has already come. It is coming and it will come. Right. And this will continue to be the case. Stop waiting for something to come and start acting now. Start acting to make yourself a better person. Invest yourself in your family. Invest yourself in your community. If you don't go to church, find a church. Just start. Go invest yourself in that community and begin sacrificing yourself to them. If you start this process, the rest of each step will be made clear to you as you begin this process. This is what it means to live an incarnational life. And if you like this type of stuff, if you like talking about these sorts of things, that's what we do on King Pilled. We've been going live quite a bit lately. Um, we've got some really interesting stuff coming. We haven't settled completely into a schedule yet, but right now we've got so much stuff to talk about that we're going as live as often as we can. We just do long live streams like this, talk about all sorts of things. Um, and we'd love to have you. So King Pilled on YouTube and uh, uh, Real King Pilled on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and then for some reading material, some stuff, if you want to go start reading, um, on the political side of things, I would say read James Burnham's The Machiavellians, read Mencius Moldbug, basically as much of it as you can. Um, if you want to start, if you want something to start with, um, there's uh, uh, How Dawkins Got Pwned is actually honest, is honestly a really good one, very relevant to now. Um, but uh, there's also an open letter to open-minded progressives where he lays out a lot of this stuff. That's in the political sphere. Um, more religion history, I would say, uh, read the book Dominion by Tom Holland. Hmm. Uh, this is where he, he will make the case to you very comprehensively that the society that you live in right now is Christian. This is a, this is a term that, that or a, a point Moldbug makes as well in his blog, that modern mainstream Western society is an evolution of Protestant Christianity. It's basically just secularized atheist Protestant Christianity. So you already live in that. That that's Dominion by Tom Holland. He makes that case as well. And then the last thing I'll plug is Lord of Spirits. Um, very highly recommend. Listen to Lord of Spirits. Start from the beginning and just go through it. I haven't had a single person who I've recommended it to not be completely blown away just from starting it and just the the it, it's going to completely open your eyes to a new way of looking at reality. And actually, actually, one other thing I'll say as well is. Um, Read the Apostolic Fathers. This, there's not a lot there. It's it's pretty. It's relatively limited. The Apostolic Fathers is basically the first generation after the Apostles. They're the mm -hmm. direct descendants of the Apostles, yeah. and we have their their writings. So this is stuff from the late first century, early second century. This would be like uh, uh, Saint Clement of Rome, Saint Ignatius of Antioch, um, Saint Polycarp. You can go to newadvent.org and look these guys up and begin reading their writings. Read the way that they talk about the Church, the way they describe the Church. And look around you today at the way the church is, the way the church acts, the sort of things the church prioritizes, and ask yourself if this is the same. Ask yourself if what they're, the church they're describing is the church that you see around yourself today. Because I'm pretty sure that if you're anything like me, you're going to find it's not the same. Right. 100% agree. Uh, Matt, uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on because, I mean, we could go for another two hours if... Uh... If I had the stamina to do so, but really appreciate it again. Uh, you know, like, like I said, we we've taken, you know, it, it, Twitter or now known as X or whatever. I, I like dead naming Twitter because I, I like to, <laughs> you know, 
I, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe in, you know, you can't change your name. Some people say you can change your, your, your name, not your pronouns. Like, no, you can't even change your name. Uh, only God can change your name. Um, <laughs> but, uh, name yeah, what, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be the tagline of this episode. Um, yeah, no, I mean, we've, we've taken some, you know, Twitter's a place where, yeah, you kind of take shots at one another, but I've always had a deep respect for you. I appreciate you coming on uh, and having this conversation with me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you to everyone who has listened in and, uh, we'll talk to you again soon.